John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I see the red light on this, so if I go out, it'll be cool. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Father, 
It is beyond amazing that you would send your son to become flesh. To dwell among us. To walk into the mess that is this world and the mess that is each of our lives here today. Father, we just ahead of time go ahead and praise you that you did it without any obligation. You did it without, without any force, but you willingly walked the steps of each of our stories. And we praise you for that. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might humble ourselves to dwell among one another in this world for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Recently, a friend posted on Facebook a, a horrible picture of this gigantic dent that she had in the side of her car. And while she was so angry about this, is because this had happened while she was out shopping. But the person had nailed her car, but was nowhere to be found. It was a classic hit and run. And she was fuming with anger. And like all good people do to use their time well, I read the comments. And so you read the comments, right? You never know what you're going to get. But it was amazing because of all the, all the people that were like ready to say, yes, don't you hate that? I can't stand people who would, who would do this hit and run action to, to nail your car and then just to leave, not to be found, not to take any responsibility for what they did, to just kind of be in and out as if it didn't matter. So let's think out loud a little bit. Why, why are hit and runs so upsetting? Why would you be upset if that happened to you? You want justice. Yeah, you didn't do anything wrong. What else? They don't care about you. Who do they care about? Themselves. What are they trying to do? Why did they leave? They didn't want to pay for it. They're self-protective. What I think that we have to be honest about as the church we all have to be honest about this, is that I think this is often how the world views how we do what we call mission. Is we are, we run into a neighborhood, or we run into a person's life at work, and we give a lot of impact, and then we're gone. And you may have experienced this. You may have at some point in your life been treated as a project by a Christian. And there is, there is not much worse a feeling than when you can tell that somebody is treating you like a notch on their belt. If I could just get this person to pray a prayer and I can go back and report it, and then maybe they'll get it from there. We're protecting ourselves. We don't want to pay the cost, as Braden pointed out. We just want to, to do what we think serves our own mission. As Melanie said, we don't care. Let's think out loud a bit. Why is it so demeaning of others to treat people as projects, 
or to treat people merely as recipients of a service that we might provide. And selfish, good. What did you say, Jay? You don't recognize their value. You don't want to engage in a relationship with somebody, right? You kind of see them and you think, I've got a service I can deliver you, but I really don't want to be in a relationship with you. Aren't we so thankful that this is not how God has treated us? Shouldn't we be so thankful? When I think of my own life and my own sin and my own mess, I think, God, it would have been a whole lot easier if you just kind of sent me a packet in the mail that I could fill out, but you didn't have to get your hands dirty. You didn't have to step into this world to love me, to rescue me. Because when we think about the life of Jesus, and we're going to think about this more as we go through this morning, Jesus didn't just offer us a service. Jesus became a servant. Jesus didn't just come on a mission to rescue us. He came as the mission, as the ones who love us. And as the sent people of God, what we are called to do, what we, whether it's in, in this neighborhood, whether it's in our home, whether it's in our workplace, is we are called to embody the personal presence of God, faithfully, not occasionally. The people of God are sent to embody the personal presence of God faithfully, not occasionally. So how do we do that? The first thing is, is we must remember that our situation took more than some sort of self-delivery. This is the longing. If we go back here to the beginning of John chapter 1, we see this, in the beginning was the Word. Now what John is doing here is he's speaking in this verse both to those of a Hebrew background and a Greek background. And so, have we heard this phrase anywhere in the Bible before? In the beginning. Yeah, we heard it where? In the beginning. Right? In the beginning of the Bible. Right? It's the first words of the Bible. And so anyone, particularly in this oral culture, that had not just read the Bible, but had heard the Bible, had memorized the Bible, when they heard these, this phrase, they are immediately drawn back into this larger story of the world, of a God who created the world, but at the time that they read this, they realize things are not as they were supposed to be. That there is this longing that this world would be newly created. That there would be a new genesis, as it were. Because when the readers of John hear this, and when the people that are in the story that John even here is displaying live this, everything was broken and not how it was supposed to be. They were occupied by Rome. They were still a people in exile. And what they believed is that they could actually, they still believed that they could actually obey God's law good enough that they could make things back to how they were supposed to be. This is the creation of the Pharisees. That if we are just holy enough if we just even make more laws on top of God's law, then, then we can make this thing right. But they couldn't have been more wrong. There's a Greek longing behind this, a Roman longing even at that time. 
Because in the beginning was the Word. This Word is this Lagos. It's this, this center of wisdom at that time. It's sort of this philosophical notion that there is a center, holding piece of creation, a wisdom that will make sense of everything, that will cause things to hold together. And so philosophy was a huge, huge part of this culture because they thought, we can figure this out. We can have a, a, a truth that will fix the mess. But they were wrong. Because philosophy after philosophy came. And all they could do was basically come up with better questions, but no better answers. And even in all the wisdom of the world, they even had to presuppose and assume upon the wisdom of a God that they themselves were denying in their own search for this center that would hold. Into this world that we read these words and hear these truths, everything was stuck. And people couldn't get themselves out of the situation. I don't know any of you in here are newer drivers, Braden may be, but you, the first time you get your car stuck is you, you're in for a rude awakening if you think, if I just gas this, I'm going to get out of this hole. No, because if, unless you're not truly stuck, but if you're truly stuck, the, the harder you press the gas, the, digger the, ho- the deeper the hole gets. The more effort that you put forward to deliver yourself out of the hole that you're stuck in, the, the harder the situation becomes. This is the situation that the world finds itself in as John chapter 1 is being delivered on the scene. The religious people are pressing the gas of the law. Do better. Try harder. And the hole just gets deeper. And so they just keep saying, well, we just got to add more law. More law. More rules. More regulations. More me pulling myself up by my bootstraps. More me by my own willpower. But the hole gets deeper. And the, the problem is, as that hole gets deeper, mud's getting slung on everybody else. And just making a bigger mess. But it's true of the world and the culture too. It's this self-help culture, right? This sort of talk show mentality that if, that if we just, you know, feel better and we just, you know, love more deeply out of the, the heart that we have, if we would just follow our hearts, there's goodness within. There's the divine within you that you just have to tap into. But we see people in the world who would deny God and search for deeper and greater truths from within, not leading us into some sort of utopian existence, but many of these very people taking their own life. Because the deeper we look within, if we're honest, we do not find good news. But we find a desperate cry for help. We are all stuck unless God comes to us and this is the good news of the gospel is that not only if we are going to be a people who embody the personal presence of God faithfully and not occasionally not only do we need to remember that we could not 
We could not bring ourselves out of the hole that we found ourselves in, but that God came to dwell with us. Into the ditch of this world's disorder, God became flesh. This is amazing. Verse 14. And the word, the logos, the creator of all things became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the one in verse 1 we see who was with God and he was God. This is the one we see in verses 2 and 3 that all things were created through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The one we see in verse 4, he was the life. It was the light of men and the light in verse 5 that shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. He is the one who is grace in the face of a religious culture that says we are saved through our own works. And he is the truth in the face of a world that would say we decide what the truth is. He is the unique Son of God. The only one, verse 18 who could make God known to us. The only one, verse 29, who can take away the sins of the world. The only one, in verse 33, who can give us the Holy Spirit that we might be enabled to live the life of new creation that we all long to live. This is our Savior. On Billy Joel's, if you know who Billy Joel is, great piano player. I'm probably be aging myself a little bit. I'm trying to think of Disney movie, Oliver and Company. He does the soundtrack. Good songs. Uh, I read this week on his daughter's 12th birthday. She was in New York City where the family lived, and he was out on tour. And so he phoned her on his birthday, apologizing for his absence. But he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you a huge gift. And so, doorbell rang. She opened the door, and there's a seven-foot box package. And she's thinking, all right, this, this should be pretty good. When she started to open the package, Dad pops out. He gave her the best, the best thing that she could get on her birthday, right? It wasn't a toy. It wasn't an expensive present. It was himself. It was himself. As beautiful as that may be, and as much as we might can imagine her joy and her surprise, this is what God has done for us so much more greatly in Christ. He gave us himself. He didn't have to. Some of us act like he had to deliver us because he created us. But no, the only thing he had to do was he could just judge us for our rebellion. But instead of leaving us in the ditch of the darkness of our despair and our own sin and our own spiraling destruction, he came himself into it. He stepped into our predicament. He might give us his person. This week we uh, remembered 
June 6th, I think it was still this week, D-Day. When uh, American forces stormed the beaches of Normandy at great cost, at great personal expense. But you know what we could have did and did do actually, not to be negative, earlier in the war when it was just happening in Europe is we just sent them our best wishes. <laughs> you know, we're with you. You know, Winston Churchill trying to get help, and we send him, hey, we don't want to get involved in that. It doesn't concern us. But once we were attacked, it became personal. What is so amazing about the incarnation of Christ is that, that God could have just said back and said, let's see how you do. He could have sent his best wishes. Well, boys, you got yourselves into that mess. Things are fine here in heaven. All is well. I hope it turns out good for you. But God, the Son, laid aside all of his comfort to step into our lives. To step into, to get specifically, to step into the fit of anger that you have in your homes that no one else sees but you. To step into the lust of pornography that you wrestle with that you might be ashamed to admit. To step into your suffering, the ways that you've been sinned against in your life, maybe the depression that you experience, is that God didn't stay back and say, hey, I'm not going there. He went there. When we think about the incarnation of Christ, what we're talking about is Jesus left home. He left home. A better, whatever home you have and whatever biological family joy that you experience, Jesus had it way better. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all eternity, ultimate intimacy. And He said, I'm going to leave that so that I can take the love of God to these people. That's amazing. He said, I'm going to give it up. I'm not going to sit here and plan, how can I make my life more comfortable? I'm going to step into that discomfort for us. Verse 10, he became unknown and misunderstood. Let's see this, because we're going to connect this to our lives here in a minute. I want you to see, this is no mere... Uh, idea that I'm having. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. So imagine if you created the world and then nobody even recognizes you. Most of us would say I'm not signing up for that. I'm going to make sure I get recognized. Verse 11. He gave up his welcome. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Nobody threw a party for Jesus. Wow, thank you so much, God, that you came and did this for us. Thank you for becoming flesh. No, he was rejected. He was not received. He persevered. Think about this. We, we often forget that Jesus didn't come just to do these three years of ministry. That he lived 30 years of mundane existence. 
before he did this. Many of us in here are like, yeah, give me the mission trip. I don't want to do 30 years of dishes, though. I don't want to do 30 years of laundry. I don't want to do 30 years of being a meni- just being a carpenter. But he did. You ever think about that? 30 years, we don't even know what happened. Of just faithful presence, being tempted in every way that we were tempted, and yet was without sin. He did not view us as a service project. He did not say, I'm going to pop down from heaven, die on the cross, rise from the dead, and go back and get it over with. He did not view you as a missions project to get over with. He said, I'm going to go and live there. And he gave himself to death. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. But his incarnation was necessary for, to use another $5 word, incarnation, if we don't know, it just means taking on flesh. You ever ate chili con carne? Carne, right? Chili with meat. Right? Incarnation, carne. His incarnation was necessary for his, here's the other $5 word, his propitiation, his atoning for our sins before the Father, his taking on the judgment that we deserve. He had to live as a faithful, personal presence, enduring sin and suffering faithfully for us so that then he could be that perfect sacrifice that takes away our sins. And he knew that. It was a great sacrifice that he had to endure to move into our neighborhood. He had a vision that was of forgiveness and taking away our sins, but it was bigger than that still because he was the one, verse 33 says, who would give us the spirit so that then we could live a whole life, a truly holy life in Christ, bringing wholeness, which is holiness understood rightly, to all the world around us, full of grace and truth. And our response should be to fall on our faces in worship. This is amazing. The humiliation of Christ for the salvation of us. Praise Him. We say with John in verse 34, we have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. But then as we come to the end of the book of John, we hear these words in John 20, 21, and 22. Peace be on you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So this pathway to us giving our lives to embody the personal presence of God faithfully and not occasionally begins with remembering that our situation was not one that we could get ourselves out of unless God came to us. But also we need to see that we, because we are disciples of Jesus, and what is a disciple but a learner, but an imitator, but a follower in His footsteps, then we are called to be embodied representations of the exclusive incarnation of Jesus. Now, why do I say that word exclusive? 
If you want to go Google this word, incarnational ministry, you're going to find about 50 different people saying, you shouldn't say that. So I kind of agree with them to an extent. So here's the extent I agree with them. The first way that we do this is we must receive Jesus as utterly unique. The incarnation is the divine God becoming man. We can't do that, obviously. Right? We need to say with John in verse 20, I am not the Christ. Right? As, we, as I'm about to make us some bold calls to step into this type of dwelling among people, but we need to do so with the words of John on our, the words of John on our lips. I'm not the Christ, just so everybody knows. I'm not Jesus, and I'm not even close. Verse 27. I can't, I'm not even worthy to untie this, tie this guy's shoes. That's how it's not even close. And the reason this is so important is because if we take incarnational, representational, whichever word you want to use seriously, you will get burnt out if you think you're somebody's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. But we want to point to Jesus. And if you try to be Jesus to your spouse, to your children, to your co-workers, and to any neighborhood, including this one, you will find yourself defeated, burnt out, broken, more than anybody you're trying to reach. But, verses 12 and 13 tell us that we have been given the right, this is, this is crazy, you've been given the right to become children of God. That is a bold statement. The right. Now you can go walk in this world and you can say, I'm a child of God. That's mind-blowing. I'm a son of God. Yeah, I didn't do it. It wasn't by my will. I didn't will this to happen. I didn't, I wasn't this by blood. It didn't, I wasn't biologically born into this. But by the, the sovereign grace of God, I am now his son, his daughter, and I have the right to live as a representative then of him in this world. This is crazy stuff. To be like John, the baptizer here, I got to say that because if you didn't know it, there was no Baptist church then, right? John the baptizer. To be a revealer of him, verse 31, what did he say? I'm not him, but I came for this purpose that he might be revealed. Because when we're talking there using this language, incarnational, representational ministry, we're saying, I'm not him, I can't be Jesus but I want to help people see Jesus. And the way Jesus wants people to see him is through us being his body, right? His language, not mine. Being his body in the world. To dwell among people. And to take it back to our original point, to not engage in hit and run ministry. To not think, well, we have a church service and we tell people to come. When the way of Jesus is that we go. And we don't go just merely in terms of when it's convenient or comfortable for us, but we go as Jesus went. When we don't, when we might not feel like it. 
One uh, great theologian, Donald McLeod, says it this way. I wanted to cut this out for the sake of time, but I can't. Jesus did not live a life of detachment. He lived a life of involvement. He lived where he could see human sin. Hear human swearing and blasphemy. Jesus said, I'm going to go where I I can hear people blaspheme. Call me the devil. See human diseases and observe human mortality, poverty, and squalor. His mission was fully incarnational because he taught men by coming alongside them, becoming one of them, sharing their environment and their problems. And for us as individuals and churches in an affluent society, this is a great embarrassment. It really is. None of us in here usually are saying, how can I go down? We're all saying, how can I move up? The American story is upward mobility. The kingdom story is downward mobility. How can we effectively minister to a lost world if we're not in it? How can we reach people if we're not with them? How can our churches understand deprived areas if we're not in those areas? How can we be salt and light in the darkened places of our city if we ourselves don't have any effective contacts and relationships with the Nazareths of our day? The great prophet Jesus came right alongside the people and shared their experience at every level. He became flesh and dwelt among us. One of the reasons I think why so many people even object to any of this notion of incarnational ministry. If you don't like that word, use representational. But I think the reason people object to it is because they would rather sit in a study and debate a theological term than actually go love somebody. If you don't believe it, you don't know that, that happens every day. It's self-protective living in the name of biblical faithfulness. It's not hearing what Paul clearly writes in Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, have this mind in yourselves, that who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying, this is what Jesus did, and this is how you are to live among one another. So, if we're to follow Jesus, then guess what? We must be willing to leave home. We have families here who have done this. Most of you in here have done this in some way. Because this can mean more than one thing. And I praise God for that. This doesn't just mean we sell our houses and move somewhere. It can mean that. And maybe some of us need to do that. But it might just mean that you need to start viewing your home as not your refuge that you run to after a hard day of work, but as a place where the table of the kingdom is spread and is open to people. It might mean that new missional communities are born so that more, pe- more of us 
can go into more places to more people who need to know Christ. But it means something. We can't just walk out of here this morning saying it doesn't mean anything. For every one of us in here, you have to ask yourself, what does it look like for me to leave home so that I can love others like Jesus? It may just mean that when you look at your schedule, you say, okay, you know, I can't go to every of my biological family's birthday parties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and still have any margin to have time with others who don't know Jesus. But it means something. It means we need to be willing to become unknown. Again, we've rerouted all this in Scripture already, but... Many of us don't follow Jesus down this path because we don't want any relationships. This is particularly a big issue in the religious South. I already got my friends and family. I don't really want anybody getting messing that up. I know who's going to be at the party. I know who I like to hang out with. And for some of us, I've been hanging out with them since I was in elementary school. Jesus became unknown and he calls us to follow him. It means that we have to open up our lives to new relationships. And we don't just set back with the comfortable ones. It means we give up our entitlement mentality of welcome. If you think that if you follow Jesus in this pattern of incarnational ministry where you sacrifice yourself to go to others, that they're going to throw a party for you, then you just haven't read the Gospels, right? Nobody's going to say, oh, thank you so much. Maybe they will, but usually not. Jesus got crucified for his incarnational ministry. And we might too. We don't do it so that we can have a photo op for Facebook. We don't do it so someone might give us a book deal. We don't do it so that we can do a story. Those things are fine and good if God gives them to you. But we do it because we have been loved this way by Jesus. And now we want to love others in the same way he has loved us. So we dwell with others to serve and not be served. Faithful incarnation, that is faithful dwelling and living among people, always will lead to faithful proclamation. And faithful proclamation usually leads to some type of confrontation. It doesn't mean yelling at someone, but it means saying, and we'll get to this later in this series, Jesus is calling you to turn from your life of self and sin to turn to faith and lordship in Him. Many people will not receive that, though some will if Jesus had just been a really nice person, then we're all doomed. This type of ministry isn't a call just to be nice, do nice things. It's an all-out declaration of the kingdom's presence for the glory of our King. So we must depend on the Spirit. We must not do this in our flesh, for our flesh. But we must do it because we're just overwhelmed with what he's done for us. And I just want us to imagine as we wrap this up here.
First of all, I want to thank you guys. This is just what we've been saying from the beginning. I'm just going to keep saying it forever. We've, we're, we've leaned in this way, but I want you just to imagine us leaning in more. I want us to just imagine again one incarnational or representational table for 1,000 people in this county where everybody in this county could walk and see the embodied presence of the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what we're wanting to do, guys. This is what we're praying for. This is what we're working towards. We can't forget that. It's about real people experiencing the personal presence of the real Jesus. Because what's worse than a hit and a run? It's a serial hit and run. It's somebody driving all around town, hitting and running on people. And we need to realize that if our time in the park each week, or movie nights or whatever, if that doesn't result in us having relationships with real embodied people in our real embodied lives, then all we will be doing is just a serial hit and run. If we don't open our own homes, if we don't open our own schedules, if we don't open our own tables and our relationships to real people getting to experience the real Jesus through our real lives, then we might fail to actually embody the personal presence of the real Jesus. But the good news is, is I know the Spirit of God is in us and among us to not see that happen. I know that's why we're doing everything we're doing. But I've just felt this, this deep burden to remind myself of this week. That this is our goal. There will be no gospel fluency. There will be no gospel proclamation if we don't faithfully unite our lives to where the people who need that are, as Jesus did for us.